Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to bring you the guest speaker talks from the 2018 East End Conference, held at the Astronomer Pub on Middlesex Street, in the heart of the East End of London, on the 3rd and 4th of November 2018. Philip Hutchinson is the author of The London of Jack the Ripper, Then and Now, and the Jack the Ripper location photographs, and is also one of the best-known Jack the Ripper tour guides in London. His talk is entitled Whitechapel Wanderlust. Good morning, ladies and gents. Um, Before I start, if anybody wasn't aware, it's a year ago this morning that we lost Susie Hanning. Um, and so I'd like to dedicate my talk to, uh, to our dear Suze, and um, I brought someone along to, <laughs> to supervise the talk, and if anything goes wrong, there, there may be some blood. There we are, stay there. Okay, I've, I've been somewhat fraudulent with uh, arranging a talk for today, because uh, everything I'm going to be delivering today isn't actually anything that I've written myself. I have quite a large collection accumulated over the years of various texts, things from magazines and publications, uh, dealing with journalists uh, and sociologists who are walking around parts of the East End in the 19th century and chronicling what they witnessed on the way there. And these things are very often uh, dismissed, uh, forgotten, that these things just get hidden away in archives and never seen. And some of these are are very um, impressive and, uh, and and some of them is even quite amusing. So I've I've edited these down uh, hugely because some of them go off on tangents. Uh, one of them, for example, they're about five pages dealing with the history of silk weaving in Britain before the 18th century. I think that is probably a Sunday morning. Sleep off your hangovers, really, of all that was. Um, where possible, I've actually got some illustrations from the publications they came from. But so the first one I'm going to be dealing with today. Um, didn't have any illustrations with it, so um, I've also I've, I've put together longer than I, I should have, so I'm going to move through a few. Uh, the first one is actually dealing with um, a journalist excursion into the East End in 1877, where he's visiting a pet shop called Jamrax, and uh, it's all dealing with the dangerous wild animals. I thought, what better representation could I have of dangerous wild animals than uh, that? So please, please miss that for the first one. Okay, this is written by uh, a man called M.D. Conway, and it's published in Harper's New Monthly Magazine. A literary friend of mine, connected, I believe, with the Daily News, hearing that I was going to visit the mysterious smart of living animals at the east end of London, known as Gemrax, told me that few persons returned from that place in an unmutilated condition. <laughs> he illustrated his remarks by reference to the fate of some of his own personal friends, one of whom had the flesh of his back torn <coughs> to strips by a bear, Another had been fearfully bitten and clawed about by a, I think, a leopard, while the third had the whole of his clothes torn off by a monkey, and was taken home in a four-wheeled cab wrapped up in a policeman's greatcoat. The animals were, he assured me, not only civilised beasts with polished manners, such as may be found in the zoological gardens, but fresh from the native jungles, and with nothing between them and the visitor but the thin sides of large tea chests. He finished up with a graphic account of his last visit there, on which occasion he conducted Colonel Forney, 
I've not seen the gallant colonel's new volume about England, but from his guide's account, I should say the distinguished editor hardly took such care of himself as might have been expected from a representative Philadelphia. He was said to have escaped a bird five feet tall with a bowie knife for a beak, which aimed to stab him in the back, only to rush into dangerous proximity to a jackal and tiger, which immediately found, uh, formed an investigating committee and began to feel whether he had any Pacific subsidy in his nether pockets. Nothing daunted, however, by the experiences of these gentlemen, I set about yesterday to beard the lions in their den. It is a long way off from Kensington, about ten miles, and it takes one past many curious old places. There is a fountain playing at which the ragged urchins are gazing on this hot day and sorrowing that they were not born ducks. We pause next to the clothes exchange, to which admission is granted for a penny, each person securing us the opportunity of exchanging an article he can spare for one he or she may covet. An elderly gentleman has more hats than he required for his own wardrobe, offered one to a friend in exchange for boots, describing the hat as a first-rate article, with nothing whatever the matter with it except a bit shattering caused by the wheel of a wagon. <laughs> On all sides, men, women and children clamoured in various foreign languages their desire to exchange garments of every description, male and female. An old woman wanted to exchange with me for 12 shillings a coat suitable for a boy of 12. I informed her that the price was too small and the coat too. Next, we pay a penny to see waxworks. They are chiefly models of murderers, which a dingy old man described with automatic tongue. Here was Sergeant Coates, the perfect murderer, and his victim. Wainwright and his victim, Dr. Pritchard, the poisoner, Fish, the Blackburn murderer, several other murderers, the claimant, Napoleon III, the Shah, Garibaldi, the late Prince Concert, the old Frenchwoman who lived under many rains and died, aged 120, by an accident, the old woman who, in 1851, walked from Cornwall to see the Queen, remarked unfavourably on Her Majesty's appearance with an HM's hearing, so amusing the Queen, she gave her a dinner of five pounds. I caught a glimpse of an insufficiently suppressed handbill announcing that the Lenny mutineers were on exhibition, and the impression was so strong that these wax figures had, like those of Artemis Ward, been doing duty in other capacities that the effect of the portraits was marred. I even suspect that one of the murderers was originally modelled to represent the President of the United States, and his victim was not wholly unlike the Duchess of Edinburgh. <laughs> Here we are finally in Ratcliffe Highway, where the lowest, though not the most dangerous, stems in London. The police never dream of suppressing vice and villainy in the Ratcliffe Highway, because they're <coughs> too glad that they can give it a semblance of outward decorum. This they can do at every other time than Saturday evening, when the blaze of Blagardian mounts to a conflagration, sort of Blagardism mounts to a conflagration. Feeble indeed amidst all these grog shops and brothels at whose doorways, even in the early afternoon, the gay spiders were sitting to allure their seafaring flies of all nations into their webs, appeared the poor little seaman's Bethel. It is a street named for St. George, and this little chapel able to hold 50 people is the only visible spear pointed at the dragon. The door and windows of the Bethel have on them notices in German, French, Italian and Portuguese announcing when the services are respectively held in these languages. Inside the Bethel there are pictures on the walls of various Bible scenes with contexts in various languages. I also observed on a table a picture of Jephthah about to offer up his daughter as a sacrifice to Jehovah, with a printed narrative extolling the valiant captain and his daughter. Somehow this curious picture wove itself with the poor girls who were being sacrificed in the street outside. It was a droll thing to observe inside this Bethel, the posters of the various theatres in the neighbourhood. The aged attendant saying, when I expressed my surprise at this, that the sailors wanted to know such things. His expression and tone said, we've lived long enough in Ratcliffe Fire to consider it a thing to be thankful for, for sailors have done nothing worse than the theatre. 
Well, it's not forget my object, which is to find how a jam rat managed the ferocities of which he has to deal. Entering into a small room next to the street, I realise how, even when it's foul and sooty, the atmosphere around human beings is pure compared to that which exhales around wild beasts. The smell is horrible. But a big parrot close by the door tells me it's all all right, and I pass on to the back shop. Here I meet for the first time that strange genius Jamrak, naturalist and importer of animals, birds and shells. This man will sell you anything from a mouse to an elephant, from an insect to an ostrich, as a huge German with a blonde and rosy face and a substantial, vigorous look about him which accords with his manner and his intelligence. The visit was expected, and he at once prepared to show me his curious merchandise, which I amused myself with some twenty droll little monkeys, marmosets, which, when I looked into their cage, mashed themselves up into one corner in such a way that their bodies were concealed. And there was a pyramid of little human faces with high white foreheads, whiskers and twinkling eyes, altogether making a show I would have travelled twice as far to see. It's up for pets at two pounds a pair. Jamrak then opens a trunk and takes out of it with his hand a snake about three feet long, ash-coloured save for a yellowish tint, and holds it out towards me with the innocent question whether it is not a fine fellow. The reptile has a strong body, holds itself straight out from his hand like a stick, and squirms from side to side too insinuatingly for my taste, but his only declares it never bites. If it were to bite, it would be all up with you, he serenely added. I was glad it didn't bite. I turned around and found a dozen cobra heads uh, erected against the glass within six inches of my head, and observing that the covering to the box was only white paper, they kind of think it was time to see the tigers. <laughs> and almost a situation in a little room some ten feet wide, made more cheerful by the fact that just then a boy was bitten by a boa brought in that morning. He made eight to ten little perforations in his finger. The boy was still at his work, and on my suggestion that the attention of a surgeon seemed desirable, a pale-faced clerk raised his head and said, Oh dear, no, we never go to physicians for a little thing like that. The only danger is the animal sometimes leaves a tooth in the wound. And he went on to writing. Jamrak said, These no bars are nasty tempers. They come into the morning. I'll show them to you. I would have been willing to forego the sight, but he'd already shoved out a round dumpy basket a foot deeper more than that in diameter and was unbinding the rope tied around it. He took off the cover, and there, piled in one mass, were nine young boa constrictors, that each at that on top being the one that on top being the one that bit the boy. They remained quiet. We did not interrupt their slumbers, and the lid was closed on them safely. It's difficult to imagine how there should be such a demand for snakes, but Jamrak supplies the zoological gardens of Europe. There ought to be some experiments of a moral and aesthetic kind on these bows. One of these reptiles which Jamrak recently got hold of had quite a curious history. An English ship which had stopped for a war at a wharf at the African Cape had a sort of dance on board that evening before sailing for Europe, and a band played music during the night. It supposed that the bow was attracted by this music, and anyway, it was discovered after the ship was a week on its voyage that a bow was on board. A large intimation of its presence was the disappearance of the rats which the ship had long been infested. The crew and passengers were at first alarmed, but they managed to make the animal a secure prisoner in that part of the ship which he secreted himself. And when the vessel arrived in London, Jamrat was sent for and took with him this amusing sea serpent. A great deal of Jamrat's custom is in providing vari uh, variegated frogs and little tortoises for aquaria. They're cheap, the tortoises being sold sometimes for half a crown for the half dozen. They were crawling all about the area and there was a danger of treading on them. But it is with birds that he drives the best trails, especially as the fashion of having aviaries increases. 
These rooms are filled with birds, but we went in one that the parrots, of which 40 or 50 of cage about a yard square, an arrangement which Jamra says they like, for strangling for precedence, clung to the front wires and screaming to us with loud clamours in tones that seemed to call for liberty. And another, thousands of tiny sparrows just from Senegal, the others, tinted and jewelled, natives of all parts of the world, raise their little voices with the same appeals. <coughs> I felt a special sympathy with a large number of my fellow countrymen, especially a flock of bluebirds, and could not help thinking that it is sad when such worthless scoundrels as Winslow and Brent are going in a four-handed freedom that these pretty innocents, because they're worth eight shillings a pair, should be incarcerated for life. But still more pathetic was the scene in a room which had just been filled with birds from some distant region, brought and caged the same morning. The birds were about as large as sparrows, and each had a separate cage made of splinters of wood about five inches square. The birds are songsters by nature, but now among the hundreds of them, their cages were piled up two or three deep from the floor to the ceiling. Not one little heart was cheery enough to chirp out the note. The deathlike stillness of the room was only broken by the incessant flutter of each in its tiny prison. Passing to the rooms of the larger animals, we found three small elephants. One was of a small species, and though 25 years old, was hardly larger than a donkey. Another, though only 18 months old, had almost caught up with the elder in size. The three were tired and having no chance to take uh, other exercise, swayed their bodies to and fro, their heads up and down incessantly, and put out their trunks and feet to withdraw them again with a machine-like regularity. There was a black bear, about the size of a Newfoundland dog, and even more harmless, awaiting sale as a family pet. His kindness is guaranteed, Jamrat being responsible for any baby who may be hugged to death. <laughs> Near him, however, is a very vicious crane, which continually endeavours to relieve the monotony of its confinement by striking with its sharp beak at any eye that looks into its prison. A death had just occurred, that of a fine baboon, whose face looked humanely serene and touching as it escaped from the miserable cage in a dark room, and no doubt it had often dreamed of its heaven of palm trees and liberty. Opposite to it, a few yards distant, was another monkey, extremely intelligent in appearance, which sat gazing <coughs> pensively, as I thought, over toward its neighbour, which had not that morning made its usual appearance at the front of the cage. Monkeys have been raised in price by Darwinism, and Jamrat could not meet the demand. There were seals and emus and a raccoon and all manner of handsome cats and Tasmanian devils and ichneumons. I was much interested in observing the lion, which had just been caught when it was fed. It was revealed how much less it was, how, how much less used it was to civilization and our lions in Regent Park by the treacherous, predatory way in which it approached its food. The last piece of raw beef was no sooner put in between the iron bars than the lion, half crouching, approached it. Um, approached it softly and sideways, as if afraid of its escaping, and having in perfect silence come close enough to give a little spring of the meat, enclosing its paws around it, fitting its teeth deep, and dragging the beef as it was a living victim off to the corner of its cage. Some of the other animals first bit the various pieces of meat cast to them all around as if to kill them before proceeding to devour them. This lion will go off this week to India, having been purchased by a rajah for a hundred pounds. The Rajas are very fond of collecting animals in the gardens. I saw also two magnificent tigers which were to be sent off that day to the new sultan. He paid £420 for the two, not, I believe, for the purpose of letting them loose among the insurgents, but for the gardens with which the late sultan so much delighted the people of Constantinople. The present sultan evidently doesn't mean to lionise us in his predecessor. Altogether, I found my visit to Jamrest extremely entertaining. I was astonished to find how cheap many of his rarities were. 
So are the living things, which this peculiar and scientific merchant sells. He has an immense curiosity shop, almost equal in interest to a quarter South Kensington. Barbaric musical instruments, Burmese uh, sacred gongs, Chinese dragon-shaped harps, vases from ancient Nineveh, Japanese work of infinite variety, idols, demons, bamboo carvings, shells by the tunneled armour, shields, buckhorns, ancient lamps, thousands of things which have been brought to him for purchase by sailors and captains from all the ends of the earth. One of the finest specimens of Japanese art which I've ever seen is now in his possession, a nude female model so lifelike as almost to cheat the eye and so cunningly made that there is no conceivable attitude in which it cannot be made to stand. The price is £30, and it will no doubt be eagerly competed for when its arrival is made known among the artists who have just now such a passion for painting Japanese figures. Jamrak is a, such a very intelligent, well-informed and affable man that a visit to his wonderful establishment, singularly entertaining in itself, is rendered doubly so if one has his personal attendance. He's well acquainted with the London scientific men, and the anthropologists keep a sharp eye upon his collections continually enriched as they are by his new importations. Just now, indeed, one little collection has caused considerable excitement. About 20 small marks of human faces and heads hollowed out behind, each about as large as Jemrak's big fist, which were found in some Mexican graves. One of them has been sent to Darwin, who has expressed the deepest interest in it and said it's probable that the meaning of the burial of these little heads of burned clay in human graves will be discussed by the learned. Some of Jemrak's visitors suggest that the race of small-headed people is implied, but perhaps they were merely dummy heads, which were submitted when human sacrifices ceased. I should have had little doubt that the 20 or 30 little heads of Jemrak's discovered in Mexican graves were substituted for human sacrifices at those graves, but for a fact to which the careful German called my attention, namely that no two of the faces were the same. Each was evidently meant to represent a human individuality, and yet the heads are less than half the size of an ordinary head may still be that these brick skulls and faces represent a tr transitional face, in which it was necessary for the slave to throw into his master's grave either his head or something enough like it to cheat the ghostly eye, and to see it with a certain aerial perspective. After leaving Jamrak, somehow the people swarming along Ratcliffe Highway appear to possess curious animal traits, and what is more, to be gainers by the association. A man, for instance, who was assiduous in his endeavours to punch the head of a young woman, who in all St. George and the East seemed to find no champion, although <coughs> a gaping crowd stood around, appeared to me a plain transmigration from that ugly wingless crane with a bowie knife beak, saying it, uh, shying it at the human race. Now and then a cobra slipped furtively past, pursuing it might be a bright feathered but lame and soiled bird. There are voices that are growls, others that are barks, like the hyenas and the Tasmanian devils. One is only to blur the outlines a little, like the old artist with which two strokes could change the face of a tiger to that of Venus, only to lose sight of the morphological man and woman and listen to their voices, look into their eyes to see all Ratcliffe Highway alive with arrested developments. Such not to be hated any more than Jamrak's lad hates the bow that bit him that morning, but to be watched and sometimes caged, unless they are as harmless as that African burr of the ship, unable to exterminate them that are noxious. The population of this region is quite different from that in any other part of London, there being women as well as sailors from the East and West Indies, and the English people too, from those remote coasts, corners and islands scattered about this kingdom, who not only retain bits of primitive costume, but in themselves seem to be mere fragments and hints of the normal Englishman. These people hardly fill the ideas I've formed of them in the pages of Charles Dickens, that is, not generally. 
Dickens was far better at studying a selected character than at selecting one that is a specimen of the rest or in painting the crowd. That tall, dark girl with a ragged knot of hair falling down engaged in lively altercation with somebody uh, might be pleasant riderhood, and you slouching scoundrel might be the rogue, and, and as may be easily imagined, I can find anywhere here the public house of the six jolly fellowship porters with Miss Abby Potterson presiding at the bar. This crowd as a whole does not seem to me, perhaps because I look at them prospectively from the point of view supplied by Jamrak's beasts, so hopeless or joyless as they were often described. What they need is more beauty. What they are forever craving and seeking is beauty. They can be fascinated by sweet music, as for that matter, even Jamrak's reptiles may be. They will idle away hours looking at wretched photographs and dismal lithographs in the shop window. The only satisfaction for their famished ideality is the musical, Penny Gaff, wherein the very thieves insist that vice shall be dramatically crushed and virtue triumphant, the dance house. A little green square decorated with flowers with one of the many idle military bands playing it during the afternoons. A good reading room and club, a museum and picture gallery, but the West End collections could easily spare one without the public being aware any pictures or curiosities have been transferred. In a large theatre subsidised by the government and under its strict supervision, these would not be very expensive or revolutionary reforms, but they would, I feel sure, rescue St. George and the East from the Dragon, which is decidedly getting the better of it. So that's an account from 1877. Uh, that's my train ticket, which probably won't <coughs> read for very long. <laughs> the second one I have is, is I think, my favourite of, the, of the, uh, the few I've got, because it's, I find it so beautifully uh, visual in its, in its descriptions. This is a Whitechapel Street, uh, written by E. Dixon in 1889, so just the year after the Ripper murders, of course. And th this is very much centering around the, the, the Ripper district. Uh, the illustrations are by Hugh Thompson. Hugh Thompson's work turns up quite often in uh, period publications. He has a particular style which, which very much appeals to me. It is a common superstition that, without exception, every East End child of eight or ten years old is prematurely aged and careworn, uh, a being that does not know how to laugh and has never learned to play. Old superstitions die hard, even in this enlightened so-called 19th century, and one that comes in useful in sundry form from the sensation monger in search of copies on the prowl, perhaps takes rather an exceptional deal of dying. Let me then try and drive another nail into his coffin. I live in Whitechapel and enjoy it, in the face of unbelieving critics who allege a certain aver that no one could ever really like doing so, but only says he does to keep up appearances. Not so. The very heterogeneous democracy of the East is infinitely more interesting than the blase aristocracy of the West, if you take it the right way. The right way, it may be parenthetically remarked, is not that of the professional slummer. Equally, it's not that of the West Ender, who often with good intentions, yet but almost unconscious, but at the same time very unjustifiable assumption of superiority, occasionally makes a pilgrimage to the East with a curiosity to see what sort of creatures these people are. Whether you mix with those of your fellows who represent unsophisticated, vulgar human nature, often generous and kindly, in the thronged and flaring Whitechapel Road on a Saturday night, or among the Jewish traders and Gentile loafers in malodorous Petticoat Lane on Sunday morning, or watch unobserved from some um, coin of vantage the amusements of the children who swarm pass in, there is an almost inexhaustible fund of interest to Whitechapel team who has the eyes to see, the ears to hear, nostrils not too fastidious, and some sort of sensibility to be touched. My street is one which has been entirely rebuilt within the last few years on the site of a noisome and happily demolished rookery. 
Though it now ranks among the best streets, apart from the great thoroughfares of the neighbourhood, I'm told that in its unregenerate days it was the most disreputable and unsavoury of holes. If this is the case, its present respectability is certainly a weighty argument in favour of the theory that when a street goes wrong, there's no help for it short of utter demolition or rebuilding on a different plan. The street's now a quiet one, wide, <coughs> airy and well-paved throughout. One side is nearly occupied by a long, low range of public buildings and by part of a board school playground. The other by the enormous and outwardly unlovely, though internally fairly comfortable and well-appointed, block of artisans' dwellings to which I have the honour to belong. We are a somewhat mixed community from the point of view of domestic finance, some with careful management being tolerably prosperous, others having to reckon on the, the carking element of irregularity in the labour. Teachers in elementary schools, policemen, clerks, skilled artisans among the inhabitants, others follow the trades of tailoring, bootmaking and mending, dressmaking, hawking and mangling. The street is certainly a pleasant contrast to many of those further east, the narrow and filthy alleys crowded behind more respectable thoroughfares, ill-lighted and considerable antiquity, where vice and violence may flourish with impunity beyond the ken of the public opinion of the neighbourhood. And to those districts of small streets where the only building uh, which breaks the dreary monotony is the occasional board school, representative aspiration in more senses than one. The block of buildings to which I refer is situated in the Jewish quarter, which may perhaps account for the comparative prosperity of its inhabitants, and altogether cannot house much less than 1,000 human beings. Of these, a considerable proportion are children small, and when they're not in the board school opposite or in its playground, which is happily open within certain limits out of school hours, as all playgrounds should be, they swarm about the streets. Let the pessimistic classes, all down EastEnders together as despairing and broken-hearted juveniles, come and live here for six months. Let him lean over the balcony and watch these wiry, if generally pallid youngsters at their play. Let his ears be gladdened by the lusty sounds issuing from the lungs of the urchins who are vigorously playing football over the resounding stones in the street with a superannuated tin kettle. Will he depart a wise, if not perhaps an altogether exhilarated man? What do the children play at? Well, that depends rather on the season. There's fashions in the games in the street, just as there are on the larger world outside. But the children have, it's a fact to be regretted, few things perhaps which they can call their very own. Children are not, however, necessarily to be pitied because they have no toys as such. A few months ago, there was a perfect epidemic in the street of whip and peg tops. Every second or third child, boy and girl alike, amused its leisure hours or diverted its attention from minding the baby rather smaller than itself, which had been entrusted to its charge. Just now, however, tops are rather at a discount. Little girls squat on the curbstone or sprawl over the pavement and play very skillfully, some of them at knuckle bones with discarded winkle shells. The boys' chief delight is in cricket or in climbing over the high gate at the board school playground. Cricket in a small, in a very small way, is much in vogue. The wickets are planted tripod fashion on the pavement, the heads being kept together by string or an Indian rubber band. The players and onlookers and noisy urchins in various stages of respectability or dilapidation as regards integuments from the young gentleman aged perhaps seven who sits as an interested spectator with his back to the wall, untroubled by nurse or governess, Igenus Omne who might want to wash his face, airily and of course in warm weather, comfortably attired in a shirt that at some remote period had been white, a pair of corduroys with abundant room for growth and a fraction of a brace, boots, socks and cap being considered wholly superfluous down or up to the boy who is a happy possessor of a suit of flannels and a cricket belt, who is duly proud of that stupendous fact. 
Otherwise patronised hot scotch and marbles. A large marble sometimes has to do duty like a cricket ball, or rake in dirty gutters for possible treasures. Some of the bigger lads seem to find roller skating a nice, cool summer game. Skating on the asphalt or wood in Leadenhall Street or Cheapside in the evening is rather a favourite amusement with lads living within or near the city boundary. Gambling with halfpence or other amusements of equally questionable character are unhappily not unknown. During the recent dock strike, the children marched in processions about the streets of Whitechapel, parading diminutive pocket handkerchiefs attached in orthodox banner fashion to two sticks with string attached to the free ends and held down to keep the banner from fluttering. One banner was scrawled in, in ink, a notice to the effect that the bearers were out on strike and that they would take sixpence an hour and no surrender. As the procession passed along, the youngsters who enjoyed the fun greatly sent around the hat to the passers-by after the manner of their elders. The board school gate is a source of attraction regarded by the small boys with unflagging interest. They seem to consider it a sort of a perennial challenge thrown down, or rather up to them, by the part of the authorities. By placing spikes on top of the wall, the board has intimated its belief that the orthodox way to enter a playground is through the gates. Tommy's views on the subject do not, however, coincide with those of the board, and he probably conceives that nothing can be more entirely desirable from all points of view than to make surreptitious entries into the playground without particular gates, and no other happens to be locked. The interest is enhanced in this mode of getting, uh, of getting in involves a danger so dear to the juvenile Briton of breaking his neck that the thrilling possibility of being caught and flogged by an RA caretaker. The wisdom of the authorities who are responsible for this piece of brick and mortar caused them, as I've said, to surmount it with a row of spikes. Now these spikes are just the right size to be safely grasped by small hands, and just wide enough to admit a small corduroyed knee. At the top of the gateway is a is a nice smooth stone some six feet long by one or two wide. A pleasant spot in which to lounge and contemplate things in general on Sunday afternoon, though liable to interruption, as in the good old game of King of the Castle. Underneath is the iron gate whose ornamental work so conveniently placed affords excellent foothold to the restless town youngster whose energies would, in the country, be bestowed on climbing trees. Then comes that universal East End amusement, dancing. I've watched many dancers in the street and believe that here dancing is almost instinctive among the young people and that it is pursued almost or quite entirely for the keen enjoyment derived from the rhythmic motion. It's very rare to see anything in the least approaching to rudeness or horseplay. No sooner does a piano organ strike up than numerous couples are waltzing on the pavement or in the road from grown people down to the nearest babies. Maiden speedy simple orgies, Betsy Jane with Betsy Ann, that is unless Dr. Jessup assures us in this case they will be transformed into Edith Evangelines. Betsy Jane dancing with Betsy Ann and likely it's not, a little earth you see Harry dancing with Bill. Now, whatever else the Whitechapel children as represented in the street may be, they are not blasés. When treats do come, they're almost enough to turn a small child's head, as in the case of the boy aged about six, leading a smaller boy aged perhaps three, whom I met wandering about last Christmas near the hospitable gates of Toynbee Hall, and then nearly choked himself in his excitement when trying to ask where the party was. It's rather the West End child with its bewildering heap of toys that is to be pitied. The small white chapler is not blasé, but his horizon is narrow and his nature is apt to be cramped for want of occasion to make it expand. If he gains in physical sturdiness and self-reliance from his noisy <coughs> playing in the street, he also learns that there are some things which children and grown people, for the matter of that, were better without. And there is another side to the picture. All East End streets are, as has been already said, by no means so well built, well paid and fairly secluded as this. 
Far from it. There are still far too many old and narrow and dirty streets and rookeries coagulated together, in spite of the demolition and rebuilding that have, in this parish, taken place of late years. Careful parents are not like their young children are playing in the streets of this kind. From a moral point of view, they say nothing of the risks of life and limb. And small tenement houses have no courtyard at the back. So the children are kept indoors, perhaps in a small room that is the living room of a whole family. No wonder their faces are pale and they're always ailing. A country holiday opens possibilities to such children. And there are many, and the owners of insanitary small tenement property, together with the beautiful industrial system of unlimited competition, are largely responsible for these facts, before undreamed of. Mental, moral and physical. There was once a boy who had never been out of Bethnal Green in his life. His schoolmaster took him for a day in the country. When they reached the fields, the boy seemed to be rapidly taking leave of his senses. The master asked what was the matter. Oh, gasped the boy. It's a great long street with an airy house, and it's the colour of a barrow. As I return home this evening, I meet my small friend Tommy. If his name isn't Tommy, then it should be. A grimy but sweet-faced young rascal playing about in the street with a piece of bread and butter in his hands, happy as a king. Tommy's never yet ventured on a remark, but whenever I meet him, he bestows on me a wholly gratuitous and benevolent smile. Another and more chubby little neighbour, who is an obstructively affectionate way of embracing one on the <coughs> leg, her height does not admit of more, and whose affection, it must be confessed, was stolen with flowers, is squatting at the foot of the common staircase, and forthwith acquaints me with its wish to be jumped off two steps. A small person has its jump, and I pass up to the tenement, which is my castle, as one can command a fine and uninterrupted view of the smoky chimneys and campanars of Whitechapel and Spitalfields, and that the children small, spilt like blots, rather like rays of sunshine down below. Another account here. This is from Scribner's magazine in April 1892, and it's written by Robert A. Woods, and it's called The Social Awakening in London. Again, this had to be heavily edited down because there was some very dry stuff in here indeed. Even after I've edited it, I've actually cut more pages out because all this crossing out through the thing. So uh, hopefully this will be more engaging. There is a place in London, as Leadenhall Street coming from where the East India House was, runs into Aldgate, where in a few steps one parts company with a decreasing number of merchants and clerks and is swept into the strange current of East End humanity. One feels a sudden chill as when passing out of a warm breeze into another with a touch of coming winter in it. Aldgate is still almost as distinctly as when the wall stood, the limit in that direction of the old city of London. While the movement of life from the east end turns sharply to the north, there, going up through Houndsditch, the region of old clothes, trafficking through brokers and exchanges after the manner of other lines of commerce. From this point, several miles eastward, from the water several miles northward, of a million people whose existence is very largely taken up with a close struggle against poverty. A hundred thousand East Londoners rise each morning with little or no assurance as to where their daily bread may come from. Another great region, equal in size and population to the East End, and on a par with it as to the social conditions, stretches off to the south from the River Thames. So much of London may be fairly said to be given over to poverty, but this is not to say that poverty is absent elsewhere. It's never far away in London. The East End will still continue to be thought of in a special way as the Nether London. It is a clearly marked life of its own. South London life is characterised by pathetic monotony. East London has its gloom lit up by many picturesque features. A walk down the broad high street on a Saturday evening, among the dockers with their slouched caps and flannel neckcloths, the factory girls and their plumage eyed by the week, and the many curious types of people gazing into the glaring shop windows. 
inspecting and variously testing the wares in <coughs> the booth set up by the roadside, which have gone far on the way of all earthly travels, treasures, moth-eaten, rusted, if not indeed stolen. Listening to the noisy fakirs or joining in the sports of the improvised fag is one a strong sense of the romantic side of the existence in the East End. It is this quality, in addition to the extremity of its need, that has done so much towards making East London, for the world at large, the classic ground of poverty. The new efforts for the elevation of East Londoners, with which nearly everyone has by this time heard the rumour, are confirming the claim to an undesirable preeminence. Toynbee Hall and the People's Palace are now entered in Bidecker, and one wonders whether the majority of the visitors are not made up from the 150,000 Americans who in the early weeks of summer populate the great hotels and lodging houses of Bloomsbury. And it's a good thing if it is so. In America, they're kept from a full sympathy with their poorer brethren, not only by the barrier of different social positions, but by the more impassable barrier of alien race. In London, the faces of the poor have the familiar Anglo-Saxon lineaments. One of these unsuspected reasons for that home feeling which all intelligent Americans experience in London is that they seem to be able to see themselves in tatters. It is this fact especially which causes the average American to return from even a carriage ride in the East End with some new care for the men and women who have to pass their lives in a great city's closely crowded quarters. A St. Jude's Church in Whitechapel, uh, of which the Reverend Samuel A. Barnett, founder of Toynbee Hall, is the vicar, there is every year a picture exhibition lasting for three weeks, including Sundays, which was visited the last time by 70,000 people. The same church has a new, unique musical service called the Worship Hour on Sunday evening, of which the seats are nearly all taken by an audience, including even some of those hapless castaways of humanity, such as seldom seen in church, even in East London. The food and shelter depots, which have displaced the meeting halls in several instances, take care of those who are without other resort to charge of fourpence for supper, lodging and breakfast. That's the matter introduced into the Salvation Army's factories and workshops, where they are put to wood chopping, map making, carpentering, and other industries. Women are employed at sewing and laundry work and in the match factory. There are homes specially provided for the wards of the slum corps and of the uh, prison gate brigades, where they are given work suitable to their skill and strength. Charity organisation is taking a wider scope as it progresses and it's, it, it is making its framework available for those better forms of charity which have to do with prevention. It has given a clue to various associations for offending children and young people. Among these is the Country Holiday Fund, which every summer sends 20,000 slum children singing through the underground tunnels on their way to these sunny fields. The Charity Organisation Society also lends facilities to a most useful society which taking in charge the question of the sanitary conditions of tenement houses. With this comprehensive system centred in one metropolitan council, it becomes possible for the Charity Organisation Society to wield a considerable influence upon matters that affect the conditions of life in London. There is only one regret about it all. It is that the methods of the society lack, to a degree, the element of sympathy. So much of its work has all along had to do with curbing harmful sentiment that, that is likely to be suspicious of sentiment in any form. A man holding a high position in the society who acknowledged the difficulties is responsible for the statement, which I hope it may not seem unchivalrous to repeat, that the women members of the committee were often oftener unsympathetic with their cases than the men. The explanation of this anomaly seems to be that when finer feelings are put under restraint, as must be in the administration of charity, women come more completely than men under the letter of rigid precepts. 
1867, Edward Dennison, a young Oxford man, born to that inclination towards public duty which characterises the high-class Englishman, conceived the purpose of endeavouring to meet some of the problems of poverty by taking up his abode in the midst of the poor. He went to the parish where John Richard Green, as vicar, was heroically at work. Dennison died in a few years, and in 1875, Arnold Toynbee, a young tutor at Oxford, first took up his residence in Whitechapel during the long vacation. Several summers were spent in visiting as a friend among the people and joining with working men in the management of their clubs. The failing health compelled him to relinquish his social work, and in 1883, he too came to an early death. It was just when Toynbee's friends at Oxford were planning in devotion to his memory to take up some of the work which he had left unfinished that the feeling of anxiety caused by the bitter cry was at its height in London. And Mr Barnett, who had been working for ten years in Whitechapel, came to Oxford and met this little circle in a college room. He told her there would be of little use merely to secure a room in East London where university <coughs> extension lectures might be given, as they were thinking of doing. He said that every message to the poor would be in vain if it did not come expressed in the life of a brother man. With this, he proposed his plan for settlement of university men, where a group should reside together and make the home a living centre of all elevating influences. Toynbee Hall is essentially a transplant of university life in Whitechapel. The quadrangle, the gables, the diamond-pane windows, the large general rooms, especially the dining room with its brilliant frieze of college shields, all make the place seem not so distant from the dreamy walks by the Isis or the Cam. But these things are not so much for the sake of the university men as of their neighbours that they may breathe a little of the charmed atmosphere. For this purpose, Toynbee Hall becomes a hospitable home. The 15 or 20 men constantly at the hall, together with a considerable body of associate workers by the skilled direction of Mr Barnett, have been able to accomplish some valuable results for the improvement of politics and social life in Whitechapel. There is a public library in Whitechapel today beside the Toynbee Hall Library, voted for by the local constituency as a result of political canvassing from Toynbee Hall. The great improvement in facilities for housing the people, in administration of charity and in the respect for the law and order shows striking results of the work of the warden and residents. As for the increase of the healthful pleasures of life which has been brought about in that, in that joyless region, it is alone enough to justify the faith of the founders. The lines for a people's university are being broadly and soundly laid. A long list of courses of study is carried through to the advantage of 1,300 students, male and female. The facilities for study are gradually being improved, and there are now two houses adjacent to Toynbee Hall, where 40 young men, members of the classes, live a kind of college life. In addition to all the classes, each week during the winter there is a concert, two popular lectures, and a smoking conference. <laughs> At the smoking conference, specimens appear of nearly every sort of East Londoner, all brought together by the general instinct for a debate, which is only a turn of the old, unconquerable spirit of the Britain. Some educated young Jews have recently proposed taking quarters in the midst of their brethren of Rag Fair and Petticoat Lane, and no man can see where the end will be. The novel philanthropy which has attracted the greatest attention is that of the People's Palace, which is the result, in the first instance, of the term given by, by Walter Besant's All Sorts of Conditions of Men, to be a bequest that has already been made for establishing an institute for working people in East London. The People's Palace is essentially an institution. At Toynbee Hall, they resent the term. The People's Palace is now not much different from a great technical school, where boys and girls may receive instruction in nearly all lines of art and skill. There is ample facilities for recreation, a gymnasium and swimming bath, one of the most beautiful halls in London for, for concerts, and other entertainments, a large winter garden, and a well-supplied library and reading room. 
The People's Palace, under the care of Sir Edmund Carey, was conducted so that it seemed to be filling out the dream with which it began. But too much was attempted at once. It became involved in financial difficulties, and necessity constrained the managers to seek the powerful aid of the Drapers' Company, one of the old city guilds which exercised a perfunctory charity as a tribute for being permitted to continue a rather luxurious existence. The management of the palace is now directed from the office of the Drapers' Company and shows a lack of appreciative sense one might expect under the circumstances. The circulars have Drapers' Company Institute in large letters and the People's Palace in small. Yet one ought not to make too much of the partial failure of this noble scheme. The People's Palace, as it is, brings a great enlargement to life in the East End. And there is still sufficient reason for believing that the idea, as it was first held, is a practicable one. By far the most stirring social developments in London during the last five years have been in connection with strikes and socialistic agitation amongst the working men. There is an intenseness and reality about the facts here, even to the minds of people in the upper classes, which can be but dimly understood by those not living on the scene. The long miles of docks down along the north bank of the river, beginning at the Tower, which is so great a source of England's wealth, contribute to East London life little more than a grudging partial support to the vast body of casuals and hangers-on whom they bring there. They are the last miserable hope of the unfortunate and shiftless of every calling. A certain number of men are regularly employed. After that, however, it's open to every man to come with the rest in the morning and join with them <coughs> at the dock gates and, and fight him like wild beasts to see which one of the number will get a, a day's work. Every man's hand against his brother with bread and starvation for a wager. The dock owners have been taking advantage of this situation by paying a miserable pittance by the hour, sometimes even dismissing men in the middle of the day, thus getting the full use of men's fresh force. Things became so undurable un that some of the strongest spirits among the dockers decided to ask John Burns, who was a, a skilled mechanic, to come and see if there was not some help for them. Burns had just been leading a successful strike of gas workers, and before that had been one of the speakers at Trafalgar Square. In the face of seeming impossibility, the men became wholly undisciplined and completely dependent upon their employment for the bare necessities of life. John Burns determined to call out the thousands of dock workers of London, it was an act of surpassing courage. It was not mere reckless daring. He saw that the market was rising so that dock owners could, with difficulty, hold out against the demands of commerce. He knew from recent strikes, especially from one in which the woes of the Matskos had been brought to light, that public sentiment was turning strongly towards the support of the downtrodden toilers. And he believed that the working men of England would uphold him with their hard-earned shillings. These things all acted in his favour. Large quantities of relief supplies were sent in by the people of London every day. The rest of the work was accomplished through Burns' marvellous power to hold great masses of men with his voice. There were over a hundred thousand men on strike at once, and through the statesmanlike inner direction of the strike by his friend and fellow craftsman, Tom Mann. After six weeks of daily speaking, a systematic distribution of food and strike pay, proposing and rejecting of overtures, and, and with all no little apprehension on the part of good citizens and some violent disturbance, the great strike was won the beginning made of the organisation of which the great army of unskilled, which has progressed steadily from that time to this. The governing bodies of London have shown themselves ready to undertake large social schemes based upon previously approved experiments. The County Council, by its fair way of treating men working under it, has established a moral minimum for wages and a moral maximum for hours. It has greatly developed the lungs of London, the parks, open spaces and playing fields. In the way of new kind of municipal administration, the council has in charge a very large building enterprise in Bethnal Green for model tenement houses which shall accommodate several thousands of people, and has recently voted to assume control of one of the leading tramway lines. 
The school board requires all of its contractors to comply with trade union conditions as to wages and the length of the working day and provides dinners for ill-fed children at the schools. Extensive investments of private capital for the sake of improving the housing of the working people have resulted in completely wiping out many unsanitary and criminal quarters. In nearly every part of London, one now sees great model tenement houses constructed after the most recent patterns and sometimes with much architectural beauty. The buildings give a return of 4 or 5% on the capital. The coffee houses of London, besides being one of the best of temperance measures, have proved advantageous business investments. Even the newest forms of People's Cafe, the teetotums, are conducted so that the expenses are covered. These unique institutions are the creation of Mr. P.R. Buchanan. They combine the features of a coffee house, supplying a variety of good food and non-alcoholic drinks, with those of a club, having numerous facilities for improvement and recreation. The patrons of each teetotum are organised by skilled social workers who direct their amusements. Mr. Buchanan well illustrates the new type of man now coming forward in England, who, with intelligence, means and energy, shall devote himself and his possessions to working out plans for widening the circuit of life for the toiling majority of his countrymen. Of this same fine public spirit is Mr. Charles Booth, a wealthy merchant who at the time when the feeling was at the highest went alone to the East End and took lodgings for the sake of making a careful study of the whole situation. Enlisting the aid of some able young students of economics and engaging a regular staff of clerks, he began his great work in which he is putting together a most painstaking, unbiased and lucid account of the labour and life of the people of London. Two volumes, of which Mr Booth, with undue modesty, stands merely as the editor, have already appeared, given a close description of the homes of the poor in different degrees of poverty and of the condition of work of the different trades. For these volumes are coloured maps indicating the characteristic poverty and wealth of every street in London. The remainder of the work will treat all of the trade unions and organisations for self-help among working people, and of the efforts towards social improvement in the way of charity and philanthropy. The replacing of large unsanitary tracts of buildings upon tenement houses will have the, continued in several other places after the work in Bethnal Green is completed. With the field in general thus laid out, there is already full promise that each considerable section of the metropolis will have at least one public institution for the recreation and higher education of the people. The churches and the university settlements may be looked to for the gradual development of all less formal and more personal influences towards making life healthier, happier, nobler. Meanwhile, the long, slow struggle of the working men, rising into dramatic interest in its fitful outbursts, is destined to bring them to a position of independence, and in so strong and pure a democracy as the County of London, ultimately as they become worthy of power, into a position of control. One last one here. I may be able to get through it. I may not. Um, I'll give this. I'll give this a go. If I run out of time, I run out of time. Okay, and this is actually by Sir Walter Besant himself. Uh, this was published in the Century magazine. It's it's uh, his account called East London Types, and it's it's, it's largely dealing uh, with with how young men spend their time when they're when they're too old to be children and, and too young to be of independent means, and it's. Um, the, the, basically, the account of child labour and, and indeed how lack of activity leads leads to criminal activity is is uh, is, is, is quite good. Could have thought better word. So it cannot have escaped the reader's observation on a work along the riverside that from time to time we pass small groups of men, two or three together, or collected in a company of twenty or thirty, hanging about, leaning against doorposts and walls, or sitting on doorsteps. Round the dock gates there are a good many waiting on the slender chance of being called in, but other places they waited, chiefly outside public houses. 
If you stopped to ask them what they were doing, they replied with assumed briskness that they were waiting for a job. At every place where there's a port with docks, wars and warehouses, there's always found a body of men who will wait about for a job. It's their trade. By a job, they mean the fetching or carrying of something. A piece of work will soon be done and will enable them to return to the corner where the public house stands. Even with throat of thirst and yearning for the brief rupture to enter and call for a drink. In most cases, he is a native of the place. He was born in the public house for which he takes his stand. His father was a casual hand or at best a docker before him. His mother was a factory girl. He's one of the few survivors of a very large family. Most of them have been buried long ago. He, with two or three more, has survived the uncertainty of good food, the certainty of bad food, the contagion of the other children, the sewer gas, the exposure to weather, and all forces which succeed in killing his brothers and sisters. He has been made to attend school. His mother, who found that she may get up in good time uh, in order to attend him decently clean and thoroughly clad, put every possible obstacle in the way, but was overruled by the school board officer and by the magistrate. The boy remained at school until he was 14 years of age, by which time he had passed the fourth standard. If you take the trouble to look into any of the readers used in the English board schools, and if you remember besides that the boy never saw any other books, never read a paper, never conversed with anyone who did read books or papers, you might assume that the whole of his knowledge was confined to what he'd learned in those four books. You'd be quite wrong. Just as village lads acquire a mass of information about things of the country, the fields, the hedges, the woods, the birds, the creatures, without book and without school, so the riverside lad acquires a mass of information about the things of the port and the river, and the ways of them that go down to the deep sea. He knows the tides, he knows the jetsam of the tides as it runs out, he trudges and wades in the mud of the foreshore to pick up what the ebb tide leaves. He knows all the ships where they come from, whither they're bound, the great liners are put in at the East India, the West India dock, the packet boats, the coasters, the colliers, the Norwegian timber ships, he knows them all. He knows their rig, he knows the pay of the sailors and their work. He would like the former, were it not for the latter, which must needs go before. He knows a great deal more than any boy educated in a public school concerning the imports and exports of London. And all his friends engaged all day long in discharging cargo and taking it in. He acquires as well a really wonderful amount of knowledge concerning crafty ways and cunning tricks by which a young fellow can live without working. Very early in life, he acquires a thirst for strong drink that is destined to keep him down and drag him lower and to have the thread of life which, when he ought to be in the prime and full strength of manhood. Some of these boys learn very early the way to pick up things unguarded and unwatched. You may recognise one of these lads by the way in which with silent and slouching step and with furtive glance before, behind, to right and left, he shambles quickly past a shop or store where things are exposed for sale, guarded perhaps only by a little girl. You may see if you pretend to be looking the other way, the hand dart out and snatch something which disappears in a pocket, while without changing his step or his slouch, the boy goes on unsuspected. He's ready to pick up everything, a loaf from the baker, an onion from the greengrocer, a banana from the costermonger, nothing comes amiss to it. There are still lingering by the riverside survivors of the good old days when the whole people lived in luxury on the robberies they committed from the ships loading or unloading in the river. The barges go up and down with the tide and ebb, they lie in the mud. The men in charge go ashore to drink, the boys climb on board in search of whatever they can get. If the barge is laden with sugar, they cut holes in the bags and fill their pockets, their hats, their boots, their handkerchiefs with sugar, which they carry ashore and sell. They get a halfpenny a pound for their plunder. If the barge is laden with coals, they carry off all that their clothes will hold. One goes before to warn the rest of danger. Plenty of houses on the way are open to them. It's a comparatively safe and certainly a pleasant way of earning a penny or two. Not at one step, not suddenly, does a man become tapissimus. The casual hand grows slowly or quickly. He grows and develops. He finds himself on the path which leads to the corner and the doorpost, to the hand in the pocket, the eye and the swinging door, and the thoughts turn constantly on the fragrance of beer. 
Thousands of boys every year leave the board school, their education completed, with no chance of apprenticeship to any craft, their hands absolutely untrained, just a hanging pair of hands, prehensile like a monkey's tail. It's likely that they are prehensile, otherwise these poor boys would starve. As it is, they have to face the problem of getting work, of providing themselves with the daily bread for 60 long years without knowing any one of the many arts and crafts by which men live and provide for their families and themselves. At the outset, it appears to be a hopeless task. Of course, it must always be the greatest possible misfortune for a lad to have learned no trade. If we consider the ways of intellectual power alone, it must be acknowledged to be the greatest possible misfortune. But the situation is not so hopeless as it looks. There are always many openings for such a boy. Let us consider, for instance, for instance which lines of work he may attempt, keeping only to those which require no previous training or skill. He's heard of these openings from other boys. He's heard of such openings all his life. For instance, he would perhaps like to enter the service of the city as one of the boys whose business it is to keep the streets clean. The sewer boys, though the work is not popular with parents on account of the dangers from camps of omnibuses. You may see boys in their white duck jackets or red caps running about among the horses all day in Cheapside. They never get run over. And they seem to take pride in doing their work rapidly and thoroughly. Very good pay it gives them. Six shillings, sixpence a week, rising to 14 shillings. Their hours of work are from half past seven till five. They started with a pint of hot coffee. They get half an hour for dinner. They can earn an odd sixpence or so holding horses and minding parcels that were strictly forbidden by their employers. But whoever knew a boy was not above the law. Even better than this, there is the railway service if a boy can get into it. Great things are possible on railways. At the London stations, in which the trains are coming in or going out all day long, and every passenger with luggage is good for a tip of threepence or sixpence, no one knows what the weekly earnings of a railway porter may be. Things are whispered. Nothing is known for certain. The railway porter preserves a smiling silence on the subject, and the position is regarded as a great prize in the profession of unskilled hands. In the railway companies, the boy is generally taken on as a vanguard at eight to ten shillings a week. A very enviable occupation is that of a vanguard. It's one simple duty is is to sit on, uh, sit behind the boxes and parcels in order to take care that none of them are stolen or drops into the street. One must assist the loading and unloading, but the greater part of the day is spent in being carried about the streets and enjoying a moving panorama of London and all its quarters. The great possibilities for this boy may rise to the driver of the van and post a real distinction and responsibility. The hours, however, are long. The van leaves the station at 7am and is very seldom back much before 8 or 9 in the evening, so the boy often gets home at 10 o'clock. Let me move on through this one. See if I can actually get to the. Uh... Yeah, I just want to move on to the end of this one. See if I can actually get to a point actually dealing with some of the crying in the area that, that, can, that can be accounted for rather than work. Anyway. We shorten the hours of work, and we offer nothing in the place of work except the street. We leave the lads whom we thought to benefit by increased leisure to their own devices, and to discover, if they can, the way to turn the hours thus rescued from drudgery into the means of climbing to a higher life. We've hitherto left them even in complete ignorance as to any higher life at all. Their own idea of employing their idle time is to do nothing, simply to amuse themselves, and as the street is the only place they can find amusement for nothing, they go into the street. They walk about in little companies of two and three, they smoke cheap cigarettes, while they have a certain early manhood. They carry on free fights on the pavement, they make rushes among the people, they push and hustle the younger girls who are by no means backward in retaliation. They whistle and sing and practice the calls of their quarter. They get up little impromptu plays, dramas and in spoken mummery and mimicry. I have, for instance, more than once seen in papers and articles a melancholy account of precocious drunkenness among the young folk of the slums. 
Boys and girls, says the horrified observer, were really about drunk. The girls were even worse than the boys. I spoke to one. She was no more than 13 or so, a pretty child, but helplessly intoxicated. Acting and running and shouting are amusing as far as they go, but they're not enough. The blood is restless at 17. It wants exercise in reality, not pretense. The restlessness in the case of the hands organised originally for local... Sorry, the restlessness is the cause of the bands organised originally for local fights. The boys of one street unite in a small regiment. They arm themselves with clubs, small iron bars, leather belts and buckles, knotted handkerchiefs with stones tied up in them, with slings and stones with knives, even with revolvers of the toy kind. And they go forth and fight the lads of another street. It's a real fight. The field is strewn with the wounded. The police have trouble in putting a stop to the combat. The broken heads, black eyes and bandaged arms leaders appear the next day before the magistrate. In the autumn of 1898, an offensive elderly gentleman was knocked down by such a gang, robbed, kicked about the head, and taken up insensible. He was carried home and died the next day. These gangs are called hooligans. They're difficult to deal with because they meet, fight, and disperse with such rapidity that it's next to impossible to get hold of them. It is a bad fashion of the time and will probably disappear before long. Meantime, the boys regard these holdings of the street with pride. Their captain as a hero, as much the captain of the eleven of the public school. They often go to the musical. There's three or four in, the, in their own quarter. The, the Paragon, the, the Mile End Road, the Foresters, the Cambridge Road, the Queen's Poplar, but they all go further afield and may be found in the galleries of even West End musicals to see a popular turn. As for the concerts and lectures and entertainments given at Toynbee Hall, uh, given, sorry, given at the Town Hall or other places, they will not go to them. There's too much class. At this time, 16 or 17, the boys commonly take a sweetheart. They keep company with a girl. Night after night, they walk the streets together. What they, they talk about, no one knows. The young girl of 16 or 17, ignorant of everything, enters upon the married life. And for the rest of her days, endures all the wretchedness of grinding poverty. Children half nourished and enraged a drunken husband and a drunken self. The boys' clubs, the girls' clubs, the settlements uh, do all in their power to occupy the young people's minds with other things. But the club closes at 10 and the street remains open all night. What's the connection between the casual hand and the lad of the street? Well, this, the life of the street is an ordeal through which these lads must pass, since we've given them no other choice. Some of them emerge without harm. The craving for drink is not known to them. They've never been held before the police court. They know not the interior of a prison or reformatory. They, they've not married at 19. These are the young fellows who get and keep the permanent places with good money. They're hewers of wood and drawers of water like the children of Gibeon. But they live no longer in the slums. Their home is the monotonies. It's a four or six-roomed house. Uh, such as being built in Bethnal Green. Every man has his own history and his own experiences, his birth and his childhood, his manhood and his age, and these themselves can never be monotonous. But there remains the majority. It consists of those to whom the ordeal of the street leaves broken down. They have followed the easy way, that of no restraint, that of the moment's pleasure, that into which temptation is. By night in there, lost the joy of work, the desire for work, the pride of work. Necessity of work becomes a veritable curse. Work is to be done if they would drink. They're badly fed. Half a dozen of them over a piece of rule work are not equal to a single country lad. They have wife and children at home and hang about the dock gates. They are taken on only when even weaker hands must be taken. They wait for jobs which seldom come. They have neither honesty nor self-respect nor any sense of duty or responsibility at all. What to do for or with these unfortunates is the most pressing difficult, uh, pressing difficult problem for those who would, if they could, Lend a helping hand. I have gone on an hour and five minutes. Thankfully, which introduced me earlier. I still wanted to make time to do. Thank you so much for your patience in reading and listening through my monotonous uh, drawl through these accounts. Um,
But uh, that's that's it for me. Thank you very much. We'd like to thank Philip Hutchinson, Adam Wood, Mark Ripper, and Andrew Firth for making the release of this talk possible. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you'll find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations all about Jack the Ripper, East End history, and Victorian true crime. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcast releases, you can contact us on the Casebook message boards or find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for RipperCast. Cast.